Is my microphone on? Yes. Good. A couple of weeks ago, Jim Grinnell whetted our appetite for the message that the Lord had already put on my heart to bring this morning. The final point of his sermon, True Faith According to the Book of James, was that in the fifth chapter of James, we see true faith waiting patiently for the Lord's return. This morning, I'll be elaborating upon the topic of the second coming of Jesus, which Titus 2.13 calls the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. This is a big topic, and it can be a difficult topic. But this morning, I plan to focus on just a few things. First of all, the importance of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And we will think together about why perhaps in recent years the topic has been neglected somewhat in the church. And then we will look at select passages from the New Testament that will help us get an overview of what's said about the second coming. And finally, I hope to elaborate upon three themes from Scripture that will help us answer the question, so what? Why is this an important topic? The return of Jesus was part and parcel of the gospel message. Consider the Thessalonian church and Paul's letter to her. In Acts 17, we read about Paul's visit to Thessalonica, you realize he spent just three weeks with the church there, preaching the gospel, before he and Silas were forced out of town by an unruly crowd. They had to leave in the middle of the night. Shortly thereafter, Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians while he was in Corinth. The letter was primarily one of encouragement to this new church, but When you read the letter, the overarching theme of the letter to the the Thessalonians was the return of Christ. In fact, every chapter of the letter of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ. So if the return of Christ was not a normal part of the gospel message that was preached during that very short window that Paul had with them, why would it have been such a big theme of his first letter to them? The second coming of Christ is not a secondary topic that is saved for Christians after they've been saved for a while and then they can learn about it. The Thessalonians had already become very familiar with the doctrine about Christ's second coming in just those three weeks Paul was with them. It was part of the message that Paul preached to them. The essential gospel message contained the teaching that Jesus would come again. Theologian C.H. Dodd studied the apostolic message found in Acts, and in his book, The Apostolic Preaching and Its Developments, he summarized the essential proclamation of the gospel by Paul to contain the elements that you see on the screen. And we see from the final element of the list, he will come again as judge and savior of men, that Christ's second coming was part of the essential gospel as preached by Paul. 
This list is reminiscent of one of the earliest creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed. You'll see in the seventh article of the Apostles' Creed, it's a proclamation that we believe in the second coming of Jesus. The later developed Nicene Creed contains nearly identical language on this point, as do the statements of faith of nearly all Christian denominations, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox. If the essence of the gospel message contained the teaching that Jesus would come again, what has become of that teaching today? Jim Grinnell rightly pointed out a few weeks ago that we don't hear enough about this teaching. And frankly, I can't remember the last time that I heard a full sermon on the second coming of Christ. William Barclay, in his book about the Apostles' Creed in covering the seventh article, says, First, then, we must think of the Christian teaching concerning the second coming of our Lord, and we will see that in modern times it has undergone a curious experience. For some people, it is a belief which has simply vanished from the forefront of their minds, taking its place on the circumference and even the eccentricities of Christian doctrine. They seldom preach on it and, seldom, and simply lay it aside. For other people, it is the very center of Christian belief. It dominates their whole thought and their whole thinking, and it is not far from being the culmination of every sermon which they preach. Thus, it is strangely difficult to get a balanced view of the doctrine of the second coming. Why don't we focus upon the second coming of Christ? As I've thought about this question, I have some speculation. Perhaps some Christians are embarrassed by other Christians who seem like kooks, especially those who proclaim the day of the Lord's return and then it doesn't happen. It's a natural desire to separate ourselves from this sort of behavior that often seems to be associated with talk of the second coming of Christ. Many likely have grown confused and weary of the pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, pre-millennialism, amillennialism, post-millennialism, and endless debates among those who are convinced they are right and everybody else is wrong. I suspect that if I were to pull the congregation and even the elders on the various topics associated with the second coming, there might be a handful of people who've done serious study of the doctrine, but I suspect that most of us don't know what to believe and we're generally confused by the topic. Perhaps some Christians are too busy trying to make heaven on earth pursuing careers, financial gain, hobbies, the best summer camps for their children, to be concerned with a topic that seems distant and irrelevant, the second coming of Christ? And I imagine that many simply don't know what difference it makes thinking about the Lord's return. They wonder, how does this change my day-to-day life? And yet, William Evans claims in his book, Great Doctrines of the Bible, that about one in every 30 verses mention the second coming of Christ. There are 216 chapters in the Bible that reference this topic. Jesus' second coming is referred to in Scripture eight times more than his first coming. 
and about twice as much as the atonement. So the second coming of Jesus is obviously an important topic of Scripture. Let's see this morning if we can make a beginning anyway of developing a balanced biblical perspective on the return of our Lord. What is the teaching of Scripture? There are too many verses related to the second coming of Jesus for us to look at everything. But I've selected six passages that we will read together this morning that provide a representative sense of what's contained in the New Testament. Let's first read Acts 1, 9 through 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. In Matthew 20, 30 through 31, Jesus himself says, At that same time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we read, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. If you look in the concordance to your English Bible, you will not find the word rapture. It's not in Scripture. And yet verse 17 of this passage is where the concept comes from. The Latin Vulgate translation for caught up in verse 17 is rapio. So this is where the term rapture originated. It's become part of the English language and culture, but it has its origins in the Latin translation of the New Testament, which few, if any of us, read these days. I feel I'd be amiss if I did a teaching on the second coming of Christ and I didn't at least point out where this word rapture came from. We read in Mark's, Mark 13, 32 through 37, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert, you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. 
Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. In Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And finally, we read in Revelation twenty-two twelve, Jesus again speaking, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. After having read these six representative passages from the New Testament, we can make some summary statements now about the second coming of Jesus. First, Jesus himself predicted his return. And you'll see on the screen the verses where the summary statements come from. Second, the early church firmly believed in a future coming. Third, the date of the coming is unknown. Fourth, the manner of the coming is described using apocalyptic or end times imagery. Example, clouds, trumpets, loud voices. It's described as a manifestation that will be seen by all. And there's a note of surprise, suddenness, or unexpectedness about the return. Fifth, there's an exhortation to be constantly prepared for his return. And sixth, the second coming is the climax of the present age and brings with it God's judgment. When discussing the second coming, there are some tough questions that always seem to come up. One question, is Jesus coming imminent? This is one of the biggest debates among those who study the second coming of Christ. What this is asking is, Does anything yet need to be fulfilled before he can come? Could he come this afternoon, for example? Futurists who believe in a pre- or mid-tribulation rapture say, yes, his coming is imminent. He can come anytime. Futurists who believe in a post-tribulation rapture say, no, the Antichrist must first be established and the tribulation will occur before Christ comes. His coming is not imminent. Will the second coming of Christ consist of a hidden part one for the church, followed by a visible part two years later? This is the essence of the controversy regarding whether or not the church will go through the tribulation. Those who think there will be a pre- or mid-tribulation rapture think the return of Christ will have two parts, the first part hidden from non-Christians and the second part visible for all to see. Those who hold a post-tribulation interpretation think Christ's second coming is a single event that will be open for all to see, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Who or what is the Antichrist? Did he already come in the Middle Ages? Did you know Martin Luther proclaimed the Pope of his day to be the Antichrist? Does the Bible instead teach that there will be many Antichrists that will appear throughout the ages? Will there be an Antichrist who will rise to world dominance and lead many astray just before Christ's return? What and or when is the millennium? Will there be a literal 1,000-year period of Christ reigning on the current earth 
before the new heavens and the new earth are established. George Ladd said in his book, The Blessed Hope, these are the wrong questions, and they're too often being asked when it comes to the return of Christ. He says, for the most part, the word of God is not explicit about the order of events. Matthew 24 says nothing about the resurrection. The book of Revelation says nothing about the rapture of the church. Paul's epistles say nothing about the resurrection of the unrighteous. Our problems arise when we begin to ask questions which were not in the minds of the authors. The more I have studied this topic, the, more, the less I think I confidently know. I took an advanced level class 35 years ago at ORU called Eschatology, taught by Dr. Roy Hayden. I've read numerous scholarly and popular books over the years on the topic. I've read convincing arguments from multiple camps, and I've become convinced that I will not arrive at a position that I can adequately defend to those who are more learned than I. Jim Garrett used to teach a class on the book of Revelation. In it, he would teach the four major approaches to interpreting Revelation, and then he would tell his students, pick one, I can defend any of all of them as being valid approaches to interpreting the book. Over the years, I have arrived at some reasoned and what I believe to be the best biblical interpretation regarding such things as the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, but I am intentionally not going to talk about those this morning. I don't want to be held hostage by these questions and these debates. It's far too easy for us to get immobilized regarding the topic of the second coming, thinking, if I can't figure out the answers to all of these questions, what good is it even thinking about the doctrine of the second coming? But I think there are some deeper, solid, non-controversial aspects of the second coming that were more on the hearts and the minds of the apostles than speculating about when and how Jesus was going to come again. The key principle of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, is to ask and answer the question, what did the original author of the text mean, and what did the original readers of the text understand it to mean? It's telling that Paul and Peter never read the book of Revelation, and yet they taught openly in their letters to the churches about the second coming of Christ. So if we were to temporarily put aside the confusion related to the Antichrist, the tribulation, the millennium, and ask ourselves, what was the New Testament teaching and understanding regarding Christ's second coming as understood by Jesus' apostles? Why was Christ's second coming such an important part of the gospel as originally preached? This morning, I'd like to spend our remaining time focusing on three important truths related to the second coming. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like so that they will be like his glorious body 
And 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The first truth is that it is at the second coming of Christ that we receive our resurrected and redeemed bodies. Whether we have already passed on in death or whether we're alive at his return, we will receive our new bodies when Christ comes at his second coming. That's the hope of the resurrection that Paul so eloquently elaborates on in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter that's a favorite at Christian funerals. But did you realize that we don't receive our resurrected bodies upon death and going to heaven? The historic position of Christian teaching through the centuries and the best understanding of Scripture is that our resurrected bodies are not received until Christ's second coming. George Ladd discusses this in his book, The Blessed Hope. He says, Redemption is not completed until we are delivered from the very effects of sin in our mortal bodies. The biblical doctrine of the resurrection is a redemptive truth. It means the salvation of the body. This salvation will be realized only by the personal coming of Christ. And he further emphasizes the importance of Christ's second coming in relation to redemption. He says, The second coming of Jesus Christ is an absolutely indispensable doctrine in the biblical teaching of redemption. Apart from his glorious return, God's work will forever be incomplete. At the center of redemption past is Christ on the cross. At the center of redemption future is Christ returning in glory. You know, the older we get, the more we look forward to experiencing the completion of Christ's redemption of us, the resurrection of our bodies. Those with bodies that don't cooperate with paralysis, with lost limbs, with non-functioning organs, with blind eyes, with deaf ears, with arthritis, with neurological problems, those believers are especially focused on the second coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of the full redemption Christ came to bring in releasing us from the curse and the effects of sin in our bodies. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who has lived more than 45 years as a quadriplegic, faithfully serving the Lord and being an inspiration to so many over the decades. She's not reserved about stating that she eagerly awaits the Lord's second coming when she will receive a whole redeemed body. In her book, Heaven, Your Real Home, she wrote, I can scarcely believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me, or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive, 
No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Johnny recalls being at a Christian convention when the speaker closed out his message by asking the audience to kneel. As she watched the audience around her kneel, she couldn't stop crying because she wanted to kneel herself. She wrote about this experience. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven I will be free to jump, dance, kick, and do aerobatics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime, before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrection legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. Don't you think that Johnny Erickson Tata and millions of believers around the world and through the centuries, and even some in this body, think that perhaps the most significant truth about the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus is the hope of fully resurrected and redeemed bodies? The second important truth that we want to look at about the return of our Lord has to do with the purifying effect that placing our hope in him and his return has upon our lives here on earth. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12 says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. What should our focus here on earth be as we ponder the second coming of the Lord? To live holy and godly lives. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Holy living is emphasized in the New Testament so many places, and it's a major theme in relation to the anticipating the second coming of the Lord. There's an exhortation to be found living holy and godly lives upon his return. As we think about seeing Jesus face to face, consider what Paul instructed Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, Why are we encouraged to live holy and godly lives as we consider the Lord's second coming? Is it fear that Jesus will find us doing some activity that we'd be embarrassed by when he returns? Some may be motivated this way, but really when you think about it, nothing is hidden from God. He knows everything. He knows the thoughts of our mind, the intent of our heart, 
much less our hidden activities. So if fear or shame were the motive, just thinking about his omniscience should be sufficient motivation to live pure lives. George Ladd shares an insight related to this verse. The motive inspiring the believer to a holy walk is not the fear of being apprehended by a sudden return of the Lord in some worldly conduct, but the joy of meeting the Lord who has redeemed us. It is our love for him and the joy of the anticipated consummation of perfect fellowship which impels us to a pure life. This is the thought of Titus 2, 11 through 14. We read in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. One way we might illustrate the purifying effect that focusing upon the Lord and being joined to Christ at his return is to think of a young man who's betrothed to his sweetheart, and yet he knows the wedding date is some years in the future. I thought of our son Josh, who many of you know, and he gave me permission to use him in this illustration. He met his now wife, Melissa, when he was a junior and she was a sophomore in high school. They got serious about each other during those years, and by the time she graduated and went out of state to college, they had discussed marriage and they had decided that God was leading them to move in that direction. Although they weren't yet formally engaged, Josh knew that Melissa was the one for him. While she was away at college, it was a long three-year period, sometimes lonely, always missing Melissa. And yet, they both knew that the day would eventually come when they would be together. They knew that at some point in the future, their love would find its full realization as they were joined together as man and wife. During those years apart, Josh was focused upon Melissa and their future together. He wasn't interested in other girls. He kept his life pure in anticipation of that future day. George Ladd says regarding the purifying effects spoken of in 1 John 3, the hope of the Christian is the marriage of the Lamb when faith shall be translated into sight, when our love for Christ shall be brought to its consummation in that happy day. However, it is not primarily the day itself which exercises the purifying hope, so much as the person with whom we shall be united. And we have already given our affection and love to him. You know, it's, in, it's insightful as you look at this verse, 1 John 3, 3. It does not say that everyone who has this hope within himself purifies himself. The sense of the verse is that everyone who has this hope set on Christ purifies himself. The focus is not the hope within. The focus is the Lord who is the object of our hope. Whether his coming is soon or far off, the incentive for holy living 
while we are away from him is the certainty of our eventual union with him. Just as Josh and Melissa were motivated to live pure lives as Josh awaited the eventual union with his future bride. As the early church anticipated and hoped in the second coming of Christ, they were motivated to live holy and godly lives. Oh, that our current generation would hold on to this hope and earnestly desire to live holy lives in anticipation of his coming. The third truth has to do with the missionary motivation related to the second coming of Jesus. Matthew twenty four fourteen, the Lord says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus himself implies that we can speed his coming by spreading the gospel to all people groups. Peter implied that the return of the Lord is being delayed until the full complement of people has opportunity to respond to the Lord's grace. He says in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, and then in verses 8 through 9, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Christ is tearing until the church has completed its task. Just a few weeks ago, Joel shared some amazing facts about the status of world evangelization based upon the most current research by the Joshua Project. Sixty years ago, George Ladd said, any generation which is really dedicated to the task can complete the mission. Joel stated that the best estimates say that it is possible for all people groups to have been reached within the current generation of millennials. Let it be. So this morning we've talked about the return of Christ is an essential part of the gospel message. We've looked at the apostles, and they they weren't hung up about trying to understand the when, where, and how of his return. And we discovered three important truths from the New Testament regarding the return of Christ. The resurrection of our body upon his return. The purifying effect that focusing on on Christ and his coming. And fulfilling the Great Commission and thus speeding his return. There are many additional topics that could be addressed when we study the second coming together. We did not even look into the judgment of the living and the dead that occurs at his second coming. And yet this is a key theme of scripture. And it's captured in the wording from the great creeds of early Christianity. This judgment involves the eternal consequences of the unrighteous, those who die or remain at his coming without having placed their faith in Christ and the redemption that he freely gives. And the glorious aspect of the final judgment has to do with the rewards given to believers. First, 
the reward of eternal life in the presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth, and second, the rewards for those deeds done in service of our Lord, previously unrecognized in our life on earth, but stored up for eternal reward from a Lord who will greet us with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But this is a big topic, and it could fill an entire sermon. So as we close, consider Paul. He lived as though Christ were coming back before he would die, and yet he worked and planned as though the world would go on for a long time. We should live our own lives in such a way. Paul's final letter was written as he was imprisoned in severe circumstances under Nero in Rome. Some think that he wrote it just a few weeks before his death. Among his very last written words are found in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul knew that his death was near. He realized that Christ likely would not be returning during his lifetime. Surely he was sitting in prison thinking about his soon union with Jesus. He himself is the one who wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet, in this context of his impending death, the thing that he was looking forward to was that day of Christ's appearing, meaning the second coming of the Lord. I can think of no more fitting way to close a sermon on the return of Christ than to quote from among the final words of the final book of the Bible. In Revelation 22.20, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Bruce.